you're gay, then you're gay. Don't pretend that you're straight. You could be who you are any day of the week. You are unlike the others, so strong and unique. We're all with you. If you're straight, well, that's great. You can help procreate and make gay little babies for the whole human race. Make a world we can live in where the one who you love's not an issue. Cause we're all somewhere in the middle. We're all just looking for love to change the world. Ah. And we're all here in it together. Thanks for tuning in, and welcome to the August 3rd, 2020 edition of IMRU Radio Magazine, the world's longest-running lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender radio show, out front and out loud since 1974. I'm Michael Taylor Gray. On this outing, we'll visit an author with Sonali Kahutkar, host of Rising Up with Sonali, to discuss movement pioneer Frank Kameny, get the 411 on another must-screen LGBT film, and find out why J.D. Doyle is queer. But first, from our friends at Outcasting Overtime in New York City, a queer take on Black Lives Matter protests. This is Outcasting Overtime from Media for the Public Good, producer of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Hi, I'm Lucas, an Outcasting Youth participant. In 2019, New York City hosted World Pride for the first time and celebrated the 50th anniversary of the Stonewall Uprising. As it has for decades, the celebration included elaborate floats, rainbows everywhere, and a party that seemed to go on all month long. In 2020, of course, LGBTQ Pride Month in New York looked very different because of both the mass shutdown caused by the COVID-19 pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests, sparked by the killings of Black people by police without apparent justification. Most recently, at that point, the killing of George Floyd by Minneapolis police. This reminds us in the LGBTQ community of the beginnings of our own fight. Black and brown LGBTQ activists were crucial to the modern gay liberation movement in its nascency. Marsha P. Johnson, a black transgender woman, was a key figure in starting the Stonewall Uprising in 1969, which arose out of a police raid of a gay bar, the Stonewall Inn, in Greenwich Village in New York City. The first gay pride march a year after the Stonewall Uprising was a celebration of gay militancy and the activism that had taken hold during that first year after Stonewall. Over the decades, it grew into a spectacular celebration involving millions of people in New York City, not to mention countless more in cities around the world. Some people think that the march has grown too spectacular and commercial, and in 2019, a group called the Reclaim Pride Coalition held an alternative march intended to get back to the spirit of the first gay pride marches. In 2020, the COVID pandemic caused the initial cancellation of both the main and alternative marches, but the killing of George Floyd prompted the Reclaim Pride Coalition to undo the cancellation of its alternative march and hold a protest march specifically in support of the Black Lives Matter movement. The fight for LGBTQ equality is not done until everyone is equal, both in and outside the LGBTQ community, including brown and black people. Black lives are human lives, 
And here at Outcasting, in observance of LGBTQ Pride Month, we wanted to amplify the voices of our black neighbors fighting to end systematic racism and police brutality. On Saturday, June 6th, the peaceful town of Ossining in New York's lower Hudson River Valley came alive and made its voice heard. Hundreds of people gathered at the Hudson River waterfront and marched through town to another park to protest police brutality and to show their support for the Black Lives Matter movement. Black activists of all ages, youth performers, and the Ossining Police Department expressed their grief and outrage at the deaths of George Floyd and so many other black Americans. Nadia Zaydan, one of the youth organizers of the June 6th protest, spoke about what Black Lives Matter means to her as a non-black person of color. As a person of color, I do know, I do understand on a personal level what it means to face these like microaggressions, these racial injustices, and I know how it feels for your race and for your appearance to be an additional stressor in your life. And it really does take a toll on you. And right now, like, if we're being honest, it is the worst for black individuals in America right now. So I just think we need to, like, stand up for the people who need to be heard the most. Because knowing how it feels, nobody deserves that. Nobody ever deserves to have their race or the way they look be an additional stressor on their life. That should not be a hardship for them. Because a lot of people will try to say we're colorblind or that they're not racist. <laughs> or that they're not racist, but colorblindness does not exist because it is a system of oppression and a system of privilege that is working against people of color in our country. And people really do have to speak out against that and speak out against that system. We have to reform that system. We have to change that. And we're never gonna change that system if people don't recognize their own privilege and if people don't listen to the voices that need to be heard. Cheyenne Bell. Another youth organizer told us why she's fighting. To me, I would think it's doing what's right for people of color, specifically black people. It's fighting for something that we should have gotten a long time ago, but never gotten. It's, it's so much more than just protesting and posting. It's fighting for what we need as people to, to survive. After two hours of marching through the streets, the group spread out across a baseball diamond to hear a prayer, a song, and a speech, all demanding action. A woman in the audience held up a large rainbow flag with BLM written in bold letters. Finally, the whole park fell silent as everyone went down on one knee for 8 minutes and 46 seconds, the same amount of time that the Minneapolis police officer knelt on George Floyd's neck, causing his death. When the event was over, I spoke with Jelaine Knowles, one of the featured speakers. The Black Lives Matter movement means the world to me right now, especially because of just, I feel as if enough is enough. Enough has been enough, but now our momentum has changed and people are speaking up. And what this movement, this movement's different right now because I believe there's more people who are advocating, more people who are willing to educate themselves, more people who are willing to listen, and we're forming allyship. And for, for me personally, my main focus in this is our youth, our kids. I work with kids at Roseville Elementary School here in Ossining, and I absolutely adore them, and I want a better future for them because they ask me questions about this. I want to give, tell them that their future is going to be better, and I am just so 
passionate about uh, how we need we need equity right now we need help and after that is when we can talk more about equality but right now we need help so we need voices we need allies we need people to speak up and continue the conversation so we can keep going uh, so you said we need allies what would you say is the pro number one thing that an ally can do to help support the movement to continue the conversation have these uncomfortable conversations and continue to use your voice you have to find your voice first because sometimes some people might be a little hesitant and i understand and i can empathize but at this point of our lives being taken from us at the hands of police for so long we have got to speak up and i am just so proud of our community for using this time to find their voice to speak up no peace no justice no peace The rights we now have as LGBTQ people have resulted in part from the efforts of black LGBTQ activists. So while Pride Month has ended for this year, the fight for black lives continues. And although the protests aren't dominating the headlines as they did in June, at least not right now as we record this, it's important that you keep educating yourself, supporting black-owned businesses and black content creators, and signing petitions. And keep in mind that if you're of age to vote, one of the most powerful ways you can support black lives is to vote for candidates who support equality for all. You can view a slideshow of this piece with photographs by Outcaster Justin. You'll find a link on our website, outcastingmedia.org. Thanks for listening to Outcasting Overtime from Media for the Public Good, producer of Public Radio's LGBTQ youth programs. Visit us at outcastingmedia.org to get information about outcasting, watch outcasting videos, access our social media links, and listen to all outcasting content. Thanks, and thanks for listening. With the birth of IMRU, gas was 42 cents a gallon. Richard Nixon became the first U.S. president forced to resign. Lily Tomlin had yet to begin her decades-long sojourn in the closet. And we partnered with KPFA to produce... The Gay Liberation Follies of 1974. Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight we pay a visit to Britain's new ultramodern ASR complex on the Isle of Wight. For those of you who aren't familiar with the ASR, it stands for Appropriate Sexual Response. An institute has been making revolutionary accomplishments in the field of controlling and eliminating sexual deviancy. Uh, Dr. Pomeroy? Yes, Mrs. Felton. As the head of ASR, would you let our listening audience know a little more about the work taking place here at the ASR complex? Mm, I'd be happy to. As you know, we have long used high-frequency light and sound waves in controlling unruly crowds by inducing artificial epileptic seizures and nausea among the demonstrators. Yes, we all admire the use of your humanistic and non-lethal crowd control devices. Oh, Thank you. <laughs> well, we have applied this knowledge to the control of public and private sexual deviant acts. How does it work, Doctor? Well, the experimentation that we've done so far on yes. volunteer prisoners from a local prison has proven terribly encouraging. Oh, really? It's just a tiny, tiny electrode oh. implanted in the sexual response centers of mm -hmm. the prisoners' brains. And when the young men thought about uh, appropriate sexual objects, <laughs> such as wives or girlfriends that they were engaged to, why then everything was fine. Uh, but when they thought of inappropriate sexual objects, 
such as their own gonads or that of another male prisoners. Well then, a mechanism is triggered here at our ASR control center, and the young man experiences what might range from uh, mild depression to severe epileptic seizures, uh, depending on how long it takes the subject to redirect his thoughts to an acceptable sexual object. Well, how revolutionary, how marvelous. Oh, thank you, I... Yeah, unfortunately, we still have a few quirks to work out. Yes. <laughs> See, one troublesome prisoner would not redirect his sexual thoughts away from another male prisoner that he claimed he was emotionally involved with. <laughs> so he experienced a full range of punishment from depression to epilepsy to eventually death. Oh, how unfortunate. For the program, yes, but we shall survive one or two malcontent gaily braticals. Why, even right now, we are perfecting our technique for introducing a chemical equivalent of ASR's program into Britain's general water supply. By soon, sexual deviancy may be controlled at the water faucet. <laughs> or in the morning coffee, or even in the bathtub. Oh, bravo, hair, doctor. <laughs> Don't go shame for I like. Deutschland zu Land der Freude, oh du mein Heimatland. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to IMRU Radio Magazine. Perhaps the only way through this semi-lockdown is crushing on the UPS lady or pizza delivery guy, or catching up with the LGBT film canon that is streaming online. One such film is 2015's Tangerine, a comedy-drama film directed by Sean Baker, starring Maya Taylor. The film was shot with three iPhone 5S smartphones in the blocks around the LAGLC. Steve Pride reports. It grabs you from the first frame. Gritty and groundbreaking, Rolling Stone. Uproarious, a must-see, the New York Times. Even those who don't count themselves among the transgender prostitute movie shot on an iPhone demographic will want to try Tangerine, Daily Variety. My name is Sean Baker. I'm the co-writer and director of the film called Tangerine. Tangerine is about two transgender sex workers who frequent the area of Santa Monica and Highland, which is an intersection that borders West Hollywood and Hollywood in Los Angeles, California. And it takes place on Christmas Eve. Cindy Rella finds out from her best friend Alexandra that her boyfriend has been cheating on her while she's been away in jail for the last month. I got some good news to tell you. What? I've been keeping a secret about me and Chester. Girl. <laughs> Woo! I know what it is! Oh, You're girl. breaking up with him. Thank God. Because, what? honey, for I'm him to be cheating on you like that. that. Wait, 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 what? She decides at that point to track down the cisgender woman who is a part of the affair and confront her. All men cheat. That's why they're called trade. Do them just as dirty as they do us. Out here, it is all about our hustle, and that's it. What are you plotting? What is this based on? Well, my co-screenwriter, Chris Bragash, and I were both cisgender white guys from outside of that world. And so when we decided to make this film, we had no idea what the plot or script would be. And we decided to meet people from this area, immerse ourselves. And this stemmed from just the multiple stories and anecdotes that we heard. One of our actresses, Kitana Kiki Rodriguez, told us that in the past, recently, her boyfriend had cheated on her with a cisgender woman. And so we took that and ran with it. We thought it was a sad but universally themed story of infidelity. And then we thought this could be quite a layered story and take our characters on a journey. 
that's where the A plot comes from. The B plot and all the other details really came from what we observed, what we heard, and really the feedback that we got from women in the area who told us how they wanted to be represented on screen and what stories they wanted to be told on screen. So you found the actresses first? Yeah. These are the sort of movies I make that are usually about worlds I'm not a part of. So what happens is that I have to spend a tremendous amount of time in the research process. But what I do is that I blend stages of filmmaking. So while I'm looking for the script, I'm also keeping my eyes open for possible lead actors. And in this case, we found Maya. Maya introduced us to Kiki. And immediately when I saw the two together, I thought, okay, well, now we're going to have to write a screenplay with two lead characters for these two women to play. Where did you find Maya? Chris and I initially hit the streets, just introducing ourselves to people on the streets. And we weren't getting very far because we were looked at as either police or tricks ourselves. And so we couldn't really find anybody to share that enthusiasm with us and want to be a part of this project. And then we expanded our search and we went over to this LGBT center, which is a block away from Santa Monica and Highland. And there's a courtyard there. And we saw Maya sitting there with some friends. And the first thing I thought was, that's the one. We have to speak with her. Her physicality drew us in, but also her aura. She was commanding the conversation that she was a part of at that moment. And she had a strong personality, even from 30 feet away. So we approached her. She said, I'm an aspiring entertainer. Here's my information. Next thing you know, we're hanging out regularly and conversing. What was her background? She came from Houston, Texas. She came to Los Angeles before her transition. And she's an aspiring entertainer focusing mostly on singing. So when I told her about this project, she, of course, wanted to participate, but she said, will I be able to sing in the project? And that's basically why we wrote that scene in which she sings at the club. She's found it very difficult to live in Los Angeles in those years after coming here because, as you know, it's very difficult for trans people to find employment. She happens to be a trans woman of color who came from poverty, so the opportunities weren't there for her. And uh, it was a struggle for a long time. And that LGBT center that services youth at risk was very helpful for her, finding her housing, etc. So really, she was in a limbo when we met her. She didn't know what she was going to be doing next. And we met her at a time where she was unsure about her future. I mean, this is something she's always wanted to do. And I'm so proud of her. What did you learn from doing this film? Of course, I learned about the sisterhood within the trans community. But again, this is a very specific trans community. I like to use the word community in the plural sense because there are trans communities, there are trans movements. This just happens to be one very small microcosm of one. So within that area, I learned a lot about what trans women of color coming from poverty have to deal with on a daily basis. Part of the reasons that actually led them to the streets. They're not there because they want to be in no way, shape or form. They're there because oppression and discrimination have actually given them no other option but to resort to this underground economy, which is either you know sex work or selling drugs. I also did learn, though, that we all cope with our everyday existence and the pressures and problems with life with humor. 
I think that's how humans get by on a daily basis. We use humor to get by. These women who are dealing with even more hardship than the rest of us, they have to use their humor to even a greater degree to cope. And that's something that I saw from day one, hanging out with Maya, hanging out with Kiki and their friends. For me, it was quite a pleasurable time because I was always laughing. They were making me laugh. They were incredibly witty, incredibly funny, using their humor to get by, making jokes about the predicament that they were in. And then at night, I would get home and I would think about everything and I would think about the sad state of affairs that their existence is a part of. And it struck me as something that was like, uh, during the day I was laughing and at night I was crying. And I wanted to infuse that into the movie. I wanted to actually have that balance of emotion and of tone in the film, because that's how I was feeling on a daily basis while doing this research. This has been a conversation with filmmaker Sean Baker. Tangerine is available on DVD, Blu-ray, digital download, and is currently streaming on Netflix. This is Steve Pride. Thanks for listening. Tangerine is currently streaming on both Hulu and Netflix. Stick around. We'll be right back. Always Debonair, Cary Grant, coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Born Archibald Leach near Bristol, England in 1904, a move to New York at age 16 led to stage success. After a successful screen test, he signed a contract with Paramount Pictures, and it was off to Hollywood. It would be the last document he signed using his real name. As the new Cary Grant, he cornered the market with his charm and sophistication, appearing in over 70 films with some of the most gorgeous female stars in the business. Despite that and his five marriages, rumors about his relationship with actor Randolph Scott continued throughout his life. One credit for the history books appears in the 1938 film Bringing Up Baby. Here Grant is credited with the first time use of the word gay in a homosexual context on screen. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Cameron Hunt. Hello, I am Patricia Velasquez and you are listening to IMRU Radio Magazine, out front and out loud since 1974. Hola, soy Patricia Velasquez y estás escuchando IMRU Radio Magazine. Out front y out loud desde 1974. And now from Sonali Kahutkar, host of Rising Up with Sonali, comes an interview with Eric Servini, author of The Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. Franklin Kameny was an American astronomer working for the U.S. Army in the 1950s and fired for being gay. A full decade before the Stonewall riots in New York ostensibly gave birth to the modern gay rights movement, Mr. Kameny led the charge for dignity and rights for LGBTQ Americans. Now, a young historian has written a biography of Kameny called The Deviant's War, that casts a much-needed light on a figure who ought to be a household name. Eric Servini is an award-winning historian of LGBTQ plus culture and politics. He graduated summa cum laude from Harvard College and received his PhD in history from the University of Cambridge, where he was a Gates scholar. And his first book is entitled The Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. Welcome to the program, Eric. 
Thank you so much for having me. So I have to confess, I had never heard of Franklin Kameny. Is he well known in the LGBTQ community or is this something that just historians of the community have known about? It's definitely the latter choice. Uh, his name is well known within the study of queer history and within the academy, but as a young student and undergraduate, the only gay activist whom I knew was Harvey Milk. And so he hasn't quite reached the level of so many other heroes within our movement, and he should be up there alongside them because historians have long recognized that he was the grandfather of the gay rights movement, yet so few of us know his name. And is that because he really started speaking out in the 1950s at a time when, you know, you just don't, uh, looking back on, say, pop culture of the 1950s, you don't see that visibility of an, you know, overt demand for gay rights. Mm -hmm. And he was really the first to fight back in, in the 1950s, the same time that Senator McCarthy was targeting communists and alleged security risks. Uh, the federal government was also targeting at an even higher rate uh, alleged sexual deviants, as they were called. So if you were gay or gender nonconforming or queer, you had no place in the federal government. There were multiple laws that said, or regulations rather, that said that you had no place in uh, the federal workforce. And so you were purged. And this was happening at the rate of thousands each and every year in the 50s and 60s. And Frank Kameny was the first to fight back taking his case against the Secretary of the Army all the way up until the Supreme Court, the first openly ma gay man to do so. And this is 60 years before last month's decision uh, for employment equality. Right. So let's talk about um, how Franklin Kameny started out as an astronomer. And if we lived in a just world in the 1950s, he might have remained a practicing astronomer. Tell me a little bit about his origins, if you will, and, and, and then, you know, how he ended up working for the U.S. Army and was fired. Well, I always like to introduce him as, as first and foremost, he wanted to be an astronomer. He did not want to be the grandfather of the gay rights movement or uh, a gay activist at all. Growing up in New York City in the 1930s, uh, as a small child, as a six-year-old, he recognized that he wanted to study outer space, study the stars, uh, went to Harvard and graduated in 1956 with a PhD in astronomy. And that exact same year, uh, he was arrested uh, for homosexual activity in a public restroom at an astrophysics conference in San Francisco. And within months of him getting a job in the Defense Department, the government, of course, found out about his arrest and immediately purged him. And he was barred from working not only for the federal government, but from working in the aerospace industry because it necessarily required a security clearance. So he was barred from following his dreams for the rest of his life. So rather than sort of accept his fate, he decided to fight back. How did he, I imagine that at that time, there might not have been very much legal precedent to bring his case, right? And we were still arguing about who the Civil Rights Act of 1965, which was which was passed 10 years later, mm -hmm. uh, even, mm -hmm. even encompasses or, or includes. So uh, how did he view his case as one of discrimination? Well, it's a great question because 
as you said, there was no precedent. Uh, there had been a couple of Supreme Court uh, cases involving freedom of speech, but when it came to uh, equal protection and when it came to uh, due process of of federal employees, the only thing that he could really rely on and that his volunteer attorney that he found uh, who worked with the ACLU but was not officially working under the auspices of the ACLU, they only had uh, uh, due process cases as, as uh, precedent. So they could only look at uh, alleged communists or security risks and make sure that he was getting uh, his due process that was uh, afforded to him constitutionally. And it was up to Frank Kameny after that failed, after those arguments failed, to prove to the ACLU and to other civil libertarians that gay rights was a valid civil liberties issue because all the way through the 50s and well into the 60s, uh, the American Civil Liberties Union and other activist organizations refused to acknowledge and in fact condoned the gay purges and the lavender scare as it was called uh, during the 50s and 60s. And so he was really responsible for persuading these other activists, these other straight attorneys that, that gay rights was, was a valid issue. So what sort of community did he have in the 1950s? Because as the name of your book suggests, the deviance war, this idea of, uh, of Amer you know, uh, Americans who were identified as gay, lesbian, queer, gender non-conforming, were simply um, relegated as deviant, as abnormal, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. And so many people assume that there was no openness and there was no gay culture or queer culture before Stonewall. And one thing that other historians have done is prove that that actually that's not true. You're tracing all the way back uh, to the, the beginnings of the 20th century and even back uh, before that. Uh, there were vibrant subcultures uh, in many major cities across the country. And Frank Kameny took part in them. And even in Washington, D.C., there was a vibrant uh, gay world. It was a segregated one. His was very white. Uh, there also existed a black gay world in Washington, D.C. Uh, but he drew upon his social connections and the queer spaces, including several gay bars that existed, many more than exist now currently, in, in Washington, D.C. Really? to create essentially a movement. Yeah, absolutely. And some of these uh, these bars, you, you read about them and, and you say, oh my gosh, I wish these existed now. But of course, because of the internet, uh, uh, queer spaces, at least physical spaces, are, are really diminishing. So tell me about, and you write about this in your book, tell me about the Maritime Society and the role that it played in fostering that community. It was a national sort of, um, I mean, is organization the right word for it or community, I guess? Sure. Yeah, organization. It actually began all the way back in 1950. I'm currently in Los Angeles uh, on the east side near Silver Lake, uh, where it was founded by a group of communists uh, who said, we can apply the exact same logic. Uh, that we apply to workers as a, a minority that does not know that it is oppressed, that does not know that it exists as a minority, and imply that exact same framework and understanding to the homosexual minority. Because at the time, no one really believed that there existed a coherent uh, homosexual or queer minority group or community. It was simply a behavior. 
at least to the general public. And so Harry Hay and other activists within this organization, the Mattachine Society, uh, which was a very obscure reference to a medieval uh, jesters who criticized the throne from behind their masks, uh, they said, you know what, we deserve our own culture and our own minority group, and we need to be fighting for our rights as a minority group. And that was something that actually uh, uh, went away. It kind of diminished after in the second half of the 1950s. But Frank Kameny was the one in the 1960s who brought it back and brought some of that radicalism and militancy to the East Coast uh, and fighting this notion that all we need to do is fit in and act straight. And he said, no, we need to be fighting back. So meanwhile, what happened to his case? Um, how long did it take to work its way through the court system? Well, it took several years. Uh, his attorney eventually abandoned him once he, he wanted to continue appealing up until the Supreme Court. So he wrote uh, a 60-page manifesto, uh, his own Supreme Court petition for, for cert. And he wrote it entirely on his own. Uh, he was not an attorney, certainly, uh, but it is so remarkable because it is essentially a manifesto of the pre-Stonewall homophile movement or gay rights movement uh, that is remarkable in that he claims as a legal strategy that to be gay, to engage in homosexual activity, as he called it, wasn't just not a bad thing, but it was actually morally good. It contributed positively to society. And he made that claim openly. He did it as an openly gay man. He submitted his, his lawsuit as a Kameny versus the Secretary of the Army, Brucker. And those are the two components of pride, asserting your own morality and doing so openly as part of a marginalized group. And so that's why our, our view, he really established the foundations almost a decade before Stonewall of what we now celebrate each and every June as Pride. How did he just survive? If he was um, basically had his career curtailed, fired from being gay, essentially not allowed to work in other uh, areas as an astronomer, um, how did he survive, especially considering that he was out in the 50s and 60s? Mm -hmm. He barely survived, but he did. And a big part of that is uh, because of his privilege, which is something I think we have to talk about and I have to analyze in the book, which is, you know, he was a cis gay white guy, just like me. And because of that, because he was able to pass in many other settings, uh, he was able to, to, to survive. He had a network of other white gay uh, activists and friends within Washington and across the country who gave him loans, who supported him. And he also had a family in, in New York City. Uh, they were not uh, uh, you know, necessarily um, living in poverty. He was able to get uh, loans from his mother. And so it really shows that it was someone who had the job in the first place, who had the privilege and the education and had the, the actual paycheck to begin with, who is the one who took up the fight? And I think that's something that I, I'm very critical of, this early movement that so many of these early activists, the only reason they were able to fight back is because they were benefiting from other parts of their identity. Whereas you look at the black freedom struggle, they were simply trying to get the right to vote, the right to even apply to jobs uh, and being even to access some of the gay spaces that I talked about a lot of if you were gay and black in Washington DC, you weren't even allowed into those bars. And that was de facto segregation. 
Um, so I think it's important that we also name some of these other factors that allowed him uh, to construct a movement and allow us to ask, what does that mean if, if the movement was so white and so male dominated uh, before Stonewall? And I think it shows us just how important Stonewall really is. Stick around. We'll be right back. Bringing up baby coming up now on the Rainbow Minute. Actor Cary Grant is credited with the first time use of the word gay in a homosexual context on screen. That occurred in the film Bringing Up Baby, the quintessential screwball comedy made in 1938, in which he co-starred with Katherine Hepburn. In the scene, Grant is forced to put on the only garment he can find, the frilliest negligee on earth. After answering the door, he is asked why he's wearing such a thing. He responds, because I went gay all of a sudden, leaping into the air on the word gay. According to gay film historian Vito Russo, that line was ad-libbed by Grant and used in the gay Hollywood underground. The word gay became familiar to the general public after the 1969 Stonewall Riots. The Rainbow Minute is produced by Judd Proctor and Brian Burns and recorded at WRIR in Richmond, Virginia and read by volunteers like me, Cameron Hunt. Hi, I'm Jeff Marks, the creator of Avenue Q, the Broadway musical, and you're listening to I Am Are You. I am are you. I am are you. Welcome back. I'm Michael Taylor Gray, and you're listening to I Am Are You Radio Magazine. And now back to Sonali Kahatkar's interview with Eric Savini, author of The Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. Would you say that Frank Kameny laid the groundwork for the Stonewall riots? I mean, was he, was his work one that, um, that, that those who were involved in Stonewall and those who built upon Stonewall, did they also build upon Kameny's work? Yes to both. I think the, the riots were the result of so many different factors. Uh, violent resistance was so incredibly common uh, throughout the late 1960s. And also, you know, the, one of the reasons why it was so important was, as I mentioned, because Frank Kameny's movement was exclusionary because you know if you wanted to participate in one of his marches in 1964 and 1965 and beyond if you were a man you had to wear a suit if you were a woman you had to wear uh, a dress and heels so if you didn't conform to to gender norms or you know you weren't a member of that organization or you had too much to lose uh because of other parts of your identity then you had no place in that movement and was this so, because of this idea that you know uh, some have called the politics of, of respectability exactly exactly because even though he claims that he was fighting the strategy of respectability and claiming that to be gay was inherently good which was a very radical statement at the beginning of the 1960s by the end of the 1960s he was staying a little bit too attached to that strategy of respectability is exactly what, what you just called it. And as a result, uh, especially after Stonewall, he was eclipsed by a new generation of activists who completely uh, uh, distanced themselves from the strategy of respectability. And quite frankly, that's part of the reason why we don't know his name was because he allowed history to progress without him. And I think it shows us a lesson of how, especially in a year like this one, and in a decade that has been and will be uh, full of so many more changes, 
we as activists need to stay ahead of the curve. We need to be uh, cognizant of how uh, norms and, and communication and language are changing and also ask ourselves, who are we forgetting in this moment? Right. I want to pick up on what you were saying, this idea of gay is good. This was a slogan that he sort of came up with um, that um, put a mor moral framework on the gay community in at a time when it was inherently seen or gayness was seen as inherently quote, deviant or, or not normal or not good or not um, you know, uh, uh, someone, you know, not, not something that des was deserving or of, of equality. Um, how was that received? Did that as a slogan start to take hold and start to change the culture and start to change minds? It did. And he developed that phrase in 1968. And to, to, you have to also look at where did that phrase come from? Mm -hmm. Well, he heard on television, I found the letter where he describes the moment when he heard on television the phrase, black is beautiful. Uh, which was uh, very commonly used by people like Stokely Carmichael and the Black Power Movement. And he recognized that to simply be fighting in the courts, to be uh, lobbying congressmen, or uh, uh, to be even picketing outside of the White House was not enough. He needed to address the same thing and the same sense of inferiority and of immorality that the Black Power Movement was addressing uh, in preventing uh, uh, Black citizens from joining the cause, he recognized that same phenomenon occurring within uh, the queer community. And he said, well, we need that exact same uh, strategy, that same tactic of persuading sexual deviants or homosexuals or queer Americans that we actually are just as morally good as anyone else. And then if you truly believe that, it becomes much easier to demonstrate. And even though he allowed the politics of respectability to hold him back, it wasn't until Stonewall that you see a huge explosion in scale. And I think you really start to see him start walking the talk uh, because until that moment, until Stonewall, uh, even though he was proclaiming gay is good, how can you also be forcing people to dress a certain way and to project a certain form or certain image of what a good gayness means. Uh, and so it's a, it's a complicated story, but I think there's a lot to learn from it. Well, let's talk about intersectionality. Where did the non-white male gay community fit in Frank Kameny's world? Well, as I mentioned, his world was very white. And I think it's something that we have to be critical of uh, because he, and I talk about it in the book, they did try to make efforts and outreach to uh, especially gay black uh, uh, people in, in Washington, DC. And what about they didn't women? really follow through. And women, you know, it depended on the, the part of the, uh, the decade. The Mattachine Society was actually overwhelmingly uh, uh, co-educational. It was, it was about 50-50. And after Stonewall, especially the Gay Liberation Front, for example, in Washington, D.C., was overwhelmingly male. And part of the reason was you see also a rise uh, in, in lesbian separatism. Uh, after 69. And you start to see women saying, wait a second, this, this homophile movement or gay liberation, that doesn't include us. That, you know, even once you're allowed to have sex in public restrooms, how is that going to help me as a woman, as maybe a mother, uh, with my own set of difficulties? And so you see the splitting uh, that I think is really unfortunate and that we need to learn from uh, and, and be asking ourselves, how are we excluding others in our movement? And I think it's something that that Frank Kameny eventually came around to recognizing, 
uh, that if you're exclusionary, if you fall into this trap of respectability, it's ultimately going to hold you back. This is IMRU Radio Magazine, and you're listening to Sonali Kolhutkar, host of Rising Up with Sonali, in conversation with Eric Cervini, author of The Deviant's War, The Homosexual versus the United States of America. Frank Kameny died only, what, a few years ago, right? So he was around to see not only what the post-Stonewall era brought, but also I imagine he was around to see at least the beginning of the cultural shift in the United States around LGBTQ rights, right? Absolutely. Yeah, he passed away in 2011, and uh, thankfully it was during the Obama administration, which recognized his importance and and also the error of the past administrations. And so he actually received a a formal apology uh, from the successor uh, uh, bureau to the the Civil Service Commission, which had been responsible for his own uh, uh, downfall. Uh, the federal government issued a formal apology and he, he simply stood up and said, apology accepted. Wow. So that came full circle from the way in which he started his, his legal fight. Exactly. So here we are in the last few minutes of this uh, conversation. I just want to ask you, you, you referenced the recent Supreme Court decision. Um, we have made a lot of progress and the fight that Franklin Kameny helped to start has come such a long way, but it still seems like there is such a long way to go. And we are now at, in perhaps the most reactionary um, periods in American government history. What are you fearful of happening between now and December, assuming that the Trump administration's last few months are now through December? What are you afraid that he'll sneak in under the door before he leaves? Because he has essentially promised his base, that he is going to be as homophobic as possible, as anti-transgender in particular as possible, um, because that's how he appeases them. Exactly. And the lavender scare of the gay purges began as a political tool. It was a way to delegitimize the Truman administration, mm. uh, just like Joseph McCarthy. That was his, it was a political game. And now in an election year, you're going to see the exact same phenomenon occurring. And you already named it. Uh, the Trump administration, despite the Supreme Court ruling, is already targeting uh, trans Americans. Uh, they're already uh, removing protections, uh, including health protections. In the middle of a pandemic, uh, the Republican Party is waging a war on transgender children. And uh, Black uh, trans women in particular are being murdered. Last year, it was at the rate of once every two weeks. This year, it's at the rate of once a week. And it is another pandemic that we're facing. And I think as we ask ourselves where we failed in the past, in the past of, of, of queer activism, we need to ask ourselves now, as I said, who are we forgetting and who can we be fighting for now? And I think that particularly is uh, the trans uh, community, especially black trans women and so many organizations are doing the hard work and have been, including the Sylvia Rivera Law Project and the Marsha P. Johnson Institute. So I'd encourage anyone to go look at their mission and, and consider contributing. And in fact, are is the transgender women of color or trans a non-white transgender community in the US, you think that sort of last front 
of or the most vulnerable subsection of the LGBTQ community that has that is still fighting just for dignity, just to be seen as whole and human and not deviant. And I should have asked you this about in, uh, during the question around intersectionality, but where did transgender people fit in Kamini's uh, uh, world? I think that's one of the areas where I'm most critical of him and most critical of that uh, early movement, because if you subscribe to the politics of respectability, which is, you know, we have to project normalcy and morality in order to win. And we have to sacrifice those who don't conform to that image in order to gain the approval of, you know, whether it's the Democratic or the Republican Party. I hope the book shows that that fails always. And you see this horrific trend throughout history, whether it was the 70s, excluding Sylvia Rivera and Marsha P. Johnson from the movement, whether it was before that with Frank Kameny excluding anyone who deviated from gender norms from participating in his demonstrations, all the way up until the 2000s with the human rights campaign removing trans protections from its proposed anti-discrimination legislation, it still failed. And so I think you see now, uh, it, I hope people recognize that, yeah, we have to tell these stories. We should still tell them with respect and understanding of, of the context, but we also need to call out the failings and be cognizant of them as we continue the movement today. Eric, thank you so much for joining us today. Good luck with the book. Thanks so much for having me. My guest has been Eric Servini, award-winning historian of LGBTQ plus culture and politics. We've been talking about his first book. It's called The Deviance War, the Homosexual versus the United States of America. I'm Sonali Kohatkar. We're online at risingupwithsonali.com, where you can sign up for our daily newsletter. Also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at RUWithSonali. So there's still time for a last word. And tonight, that goes to our friend J.D. Doyle who's an American LGBT music and history archivist and radio producer. Among other things, he produced Audiophile, which was heard on IMRU for 14 years. He currently lives in Houston, Texas. The first time I heard the word queer by J.D. Doyle. I was in the sixth grade at Buckeye Elementary School in Salem, Ohio, a small town of 12,000. There really were buckeye trees lining the street outside of the school. This was a conservative time in a conservative state. The year was 1959. Eisenhower was in his second term. The Etzel was still the attention-getting new car. On State Street, our main street, the two focal points were the Woolsworth Five and Dime and the State Theater, only three doors apart. A few blocks up on Lincoln Avenue was the junior high, and a number of blocks further, the relatively new high school, the only one in town. We were a pleasant dot in the country, 25 miles from the nearest city, Youngstown, where I would go to college. It was a normal day. I was at the end of a hallway near a classroom door. A bunch of the rougher boys were carousing around a few feet away, and one of them called out, You queer! Now, it wasn't directed at me, but it left a definite impression. I can still recall that scene in my mind all these decades later. I didn't think, at least at the time, the boys' words had a gay connotation, but they could have, as I was quite naive. Regardless, his words stood out in my mind. I secretly knew I was in that group they despised. As I said, this was a conservative time, 
I have no memory of hearing faggot or any of the other homo-associated terms during junior high or high school. It was just outside of the consciousness of that place and time. That doesn't mean I skated through. I was still a misfit and was picked on. Being picked on seemed easier in those days, though, at least in my schools. There were definitely bullies, but kids, as far as I knew, weren't stuffed into lockers, didn't have their books knocked out of their hands, and didn't get swirlies in the restroom toilets. I endured, hung with the other eggheads, had many more friends who were girls than boys, and avoided sports at any cost. I remember one time I could not avoid playing touch football in the yard behind the school. The ball was dropped by someone on the other team, and by some fluke, I stopped it. I immediately threw it to the closest member of my team, one of the bullies named Jay. I remember his look of disgust because I did not know, or care, that the play was already automatically over. That also sticks in my memory. I couldn't wait to graduate and escape with the rest of the class of 65. Still repressed about being gay, it took me a long time to process it all. After all, I was a shy boy in a time with no role models and way before the internet. I did not know anyone who was gay. I would have many more years left in the closet. Queer was still a predominantly negative term. Homophobes did not care if there were well-behaved gays and lesbians, and forget the rest of the alphabet. That was way beyond them. We were sick or criminal. We were all queer. Their hatred did not differentiate. Flash forward, I processed a long time. I finally came out in 1978 and entered a crash course on being gay. I soaked it all in. The next year, I was named editor of a gay newspaper in Norfolk, Virginia. I moved to Houston in 1981, got through the AIDS years, and finally adjusted to my queer identity to the point that I wanted to do something creative with it by 2000. It was then that I began a radio show called Queer Music Heritage, which was part of the KPFT show Queer Voices. I did that show for 15 years. Now when the word queer is used negatively, it just bounces off me. I can use it on my own terms and with pride. Okay, that's it for tonight. Our thanks to IMRU's executive producer Steve Pride and Rainbow Minute producers Judd Proctor and Brian Burns. I'm your host, Michael Taylor Gray. Find us online at imruradio.org and follow us on Facebook at IMRU Radio. If you're interested in volunteering with IMRU to help make the magic happen, email stevepride at stevepride.com. And a reminder, because we're a global podcast, as well as a show broadcast by the station, you can always hear our weekly show posted to kpfk.org during our hiatus from the over-the-air schedule during fun drives. Also catch us on iTunes, Spotify, Breaker, Anchor.fm, CastBox, and Pocket Casts. Good night. I'm beautiful in my way, cause God makes no mistakes. I'm on the right track, baby, I was born this way. Don't hide yourself and regret, just love yourself and you're set. I'm on the right track, baby, I was born.
yourself prudence and love your friends. Subway Kid rejoice your truth. In the religion of the insecure, I must be myself, respect my Thank <laughs> you. 